Mark 16. We've come as far as verse 9, where it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. I've mentioned before that there has been controversy about these final 12 verses of Mark's gospel. The controversy is modern, having begun with the discovery of some previously unknown manuscripts in the 1800s. After the discovery of two codices, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which have been dated earlier than the previous manuscripts that we have, doubt was cast, cast upon the authenticity of these verses. Many scholars now say that these are not part of the original Gospel of Mark. So are they authoritative? Are they scripture? Should we rely upon them for truth? This is not an insignificant question. You know, many people like controversy and like to talk about and discuss it. Many people don't. So there's probably going to be a mix here. But I would like this morning first to consider the genuineness of these verses as a part of Mark's gospel, gospel before we look at the actual passage. As you might imagine, the arguments can be quite complicated. I'm not a textual critic or a scholar, so I will be giving you a summary of the evidence. If you desire to do a deep dive into the issue, I recommend a book by James Snap Jr. It's S-N-A-P-P, Snap. Uh, it's titled Authentic, the case for Mark 16, 9 through 20. I guess that gives away my position. Mr. Snap also moderates a Facebook group and a website regarding this issue and other manuscript issues. On Facebook, his group is New Testament Textual Criticism, and his website is The Text of the Gospels. From the introduction to his book, he says this, What are scholars saying about Mark 16, 9 through 20? In 1970, Dr. Ralph Earl told his readers, it is almost universally agreed that verses 9 through 20 were added centuries after the gospel was written. Over 40 years later, most scholars still agree that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not original and that it was added by a copyist. Snap says, why do they say that? Let the scholars themselves display their reasons. Here's what they say about the external evidence pertaining to Mark 16, 9 through 20, and this is a sampling of these scholars that uh, Snap cites, or he cites a number more, but uh, concerning manuscript evidence, Norman Geisler informs us that verses 9 through 20 are lacking in many of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. And Norm Geisler is somebody that, you know, is a good <laughs> apologetic uh, speaker, teacher. Wilfred J. Harrington affirms that Mark 16, 9 through 20 is omitted in very many Greek manuscripts of the Gospel. Donald Jewell stated that, as J-U-E-L, stated that according to the almost unanimous testimony of the oldest Greek manuscripts, Mark ends at 16.8. Ernest Finley Scott wrote that these 12 verses, quote, are found in no early manuscript. And David Urit, Urit, concurs stating all major manuscripts in this gospel at 
That's, that's from the introduction to Snap's book. He cites numerous others who say basically the same. There's no doubt that there are some manuscript variances, but what are the evidence and the conclusions? Now, I'm sure that the middle wheels are turning for some of you. Uh, please hold your thoughts until later and we can discuss them if it's not too late. I pray that my words will not create confusion, at least when the entire case is presented. You may not have encountered this issue, and if so, I apologize for bringing it to your attention if this causes distress. But if you've not encountered it, then you will encounter it if you read almost any modern translation. Because they're all based on this manuscript evidence that's been discussed here. My purpose in addressing this is so that your confidence in the Word of God, this section and every section which we have received might be firmly established, not that any doubts might be created. Snap goes on to quote scholars concerning the writings of some early church fathers, that is, early Christian leaders, and some of these say they're not familiar with these last 12 verses of Mark. And then, still from his introduction, summing up, he says this, Thus we see that the manuscript evidence, the patristic evidence, the fathers, the versional evidence, which is other translations, and the lectionary evidence, which is what they would read from on uh, Sunday mornings, all these testify against the genuineness of Mark 16, 9 through 20. He's referring back to these quotations. Scholars have been sharing these statements with their readers for decades. He says, regardless of how fond we may be of 12 verses that have appeared in cherished English translations, this evidence presents all honest Bible readers with a choice. So here's your choice. We must either acknowledge that Mark 16, 9 through 20 was added by copyists and is not part of the Word of God, or else you must ignore these scholars. Here's what Snap says. I recommend ignoring these scholars. Because, he says, because almost all of the statements that I have just quoted are incorrect. And the ones that are not flatly incorrect are deceptively vague and one-sided. Now, we're not impugning the motives of anybody who's, you know, looked at these manuscripts and decided certain things. There were some that were uh, definitely um, biased, well, probably everybody's biased in their approach, but they were biased against the scriptures uh, when they discovered these two manuscripts. But many of these people are simply taking the word of other scholars. They're not, they're not textual scholars any more than I am, so they're looking at the scholars and saying, well, this is what the scholars say, so this is what they tell their people or write in their books. So, not impugning their motives. Uh, but Snap says what follows here, and this is the book if you want to really take a deep dive into it. Uh, what follows here is a much more thorough and much more accurate examination of the evidence. And we'll, we'll just look at some of it that he gives because it's a lot and it's complicated. Again, Snap's book is a good one to examine if you want to look more fully into this. Snap cites evidence, both internal and external, writings from the early Christians in the 100s, the 200s, up to the 500s. He, he cites lectionary evidence and more uh, translations uh, that indicate that the church was aware of and cited these verses even in the centuries before Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were, found, or were written, really. Here is Snap's statement concerning the Greek manuscripts. Here's, you can compare this to what some of these quotes have said. The claim, this is Snap, the claim that many Greek manuscripts omit Mark 16, 9 through 20 is false. Out of about 1,640 Greek copies of the Gospel of Mark, only three Greek manuscripts end the text at 16.8. And only two of them are early. The other one is later, and it's, it's damaged. Uh, two early manuscripts. So when they say, uh, make statements like, all the early manuscripts, well, they're talking about two. <laughs> they're not talking about 1638 or 37. He says, there's more to the picture than the simple statement that some early manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. As far as Greek manuscripts are concerned, some, 
equals 2. Some early manuscripts, 2. Early means over 100 years later than clear patristic use of the contents of verses 9 through 20. And do not include means do not include but show their copyist awareness of verses 9 through 20. For example, in Vaticanus, at the end of the book of Mark, it ends in verse 8, but there's a blank section left which perfectly fits these verses. And so the person who prepared that manuscript may not have had access to this ending, but he was aware of the ending and, and uh, left that space. If you're wanting to get other uh, support besides Snap's book, Snap is the only one that I've, I've read or looked at, but Joe Foch recommends a book, Counterfeit or Genuine, by David Otis Fuller. He's a fuller. <laughs> or the writings of, any writings of John William Burgon, and also a gentleman named Ivan Penan. He wrote a book called The Last Twelve Verses of Mark, and he was, he was a Russian immigrant, and he went to Harvard and studied mathematics, and uh, he became a mathematician. And at some point, he decided he would analyze the Bible mathematically and prove that it was not the Word of God. And it's similar to these guys we talked about last week that tried to disprove the resurrection and became believers. And so he analyzed, you know, because the Greek and Hebrew alphabets are numbers as well. They're uh, not the same as our alphabet, but each uh, al alphabet figure was a, also represented a, a, a numeral or a, some of them, you know, we go 10, 20, 30, so forth. Uh, and so he would take that and he would analyze the passages using these numbers and, and he became a believer because he saw the way they lined up. And he does, he, in his book, he uh, does some analysis with sevens and how many sevens there are in, say, Genesis 1 and Matthew uh, 1. Matthew's genealogy. And he does that with the last 12 verses of Mark. And it shows that they are the Word of God. So Snap discusses reasons why even these two manuscript producers, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, were aware of verses 9 through 20. Let me give you some conclusions from a couple of other non-manuscript experts who come to the same conclusions as myself. First is William MacDonald. He says this because two major ancient because two major ancient manuscripts of Mark lack verses nine through twenty, many modern scholars believe that they are not authentic. However, there are strong arguments for their inclusion. One, virtually all other Greek manuscripts and many church fathers do contain this passage. Number two, verse eight is a most strange conclusion, especially in the Greek, where the last word is gar, or the word for. This word is scarcely ever near the end of a sentence, much less of a book. So it ends in an odd way, an odd place. Uh, plus the fact that it says the women were afraid. I mean, that's not the way the Lord ends the gospel with his followers in, in fear. Third, uh, it says, if as some teach, Mark's original ending is lost, and this is a later summary, then our Lord's words about preservation apparently have failed. It's Matthew 24:35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Fourth, the contents of the passage are orthodox. We don't find any heretical teachings in this, these 12 verses. The style, fifth, the style and especially the vocabulary closely parallel the first chapter of the book. This would illustrate the structure called chiasm in which the beginning and the end of a work are parallel. And you'll find this in, in the Hebrew and Greek writings various times. This uh, statement about the style and especially the vocabulary, one reason that this uh, last 12 verses is rejected by some scholars is because they say, well, the vocabulary is foreign to Mark. He uses 17 words here in this 12 verses that he doesn't use anywhere else in the book, so obviously it's not him writing it, right? Um, Snap takes several other 12-section verses of the Gospel of Mark and finds, hey, there's 17 words here that are not used anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. So obviously we've got to cut those out, toss them away. Uh, David Guzik does a preface to Mark 16, 9 through 20 in his commentary, and he says, do these verses belong in our Bible? 
In many Bibles, this last portion of the Gospel of Mark is footnoted in some way, indicating that it did not exist in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. You may have that in your Bible, uh, if you see a footnote or indication there. This troubles some Christians regarding the reliability of God's Word. They wonder if this passage belongs in our Bible. He gives arguments for, uh, well, against and for including it in our Bibles. He gives these arguments against including it in our Bibles. The two oldest existing Greek manuscripts, dated from 325 and 340, do not contain this section. And neither do about 100 other ancient manuscripts translated into other languages. I think you could see uh, this is the these um, manuscripts, the Vaticanus, the Sinaiticus, are from the Alexandrian tradition. And then the, we have the Byzantine tradition, which is where uh, our Bibles typically have been translated from. I think you could see with these two streams, if these two manuscripts were being copied and they did not have this ending, how many translations made from those manuscripts would not have the ending. Whereas manuscripts from the um, Byzantine um, stream would have this ending. So the fact that other translations don't have it is not necessarily indicative. A few ancient manuscripts put asterisks next to Mark 16, 9 through 20, to indicate that it is an addition to the original text. Well, the asterisks are open to interpretation. They don't have an asterisk and say, this is not part of the original text. This has an asterisk. And there are good other uh, interpretations of why those things are in the text regarding public readings and things of that sort. He says also against it, including it, uh, almost or according to their writings, almost all the Greek manuscripts known to Eusebius, who died in 339, and Jerome, who died in 419, did not have these verses. And we'll see there's some um, controversy about these statements as well. Snap establishes that Jerome was quoting Eusebius, so you really have one source for this. Uh, and Eusebius was also aware of and accepted Mark 16, 9 through 20 from other contexts of his work. Guzik says, uh, against, in a few other manuscripts, there are two other endings, one shorter and one with some additions. Against, about one-third of the vocabulary is totally different from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and we discussed that briefly. And there is a very awkward grammatical transition between Mark 16.8 and 16.9. I'm not a Greek grammatarian, so. And then... The last reason for not including it is most contemporary scholars reject these verses as original. The argument for including Mark 16, 9 through 20 in our Bibles, many very early Christian writers refer to this passage in their writings. This shows that the early Christians knew about this passage in the Gospel of Mark and accepted it as genuine. A guy named Papias, uh, he was a uh, disciple of the, God, the Apostle John. Papias refers to Mark 16.8 about these signs shall follow them. He wrote around 100 A.D., which is you know, centuries before these two um, manuscripts we're talking about were composed or copied. Uh, Justin Martyr's first apology quoted Mark 16.20 about the commission to go and preach the gospel to every creature. He wrote in A.D. 151. Irenaeus in Against Heresies quoted Mark 16.13 about the two travelers uh, going to another country, and he remarked on it. That was A.D. 180. Uh, Hippolytus in Peri Charismaton quoted Mark 16.18 and 19. In his homily on the heresy of Noetus, he refers to Mark 16.19, and he wrote when he was Bishop of Portus, A.D. 190-227. Vicentius, Bishop of Sabari, quoted from two of the verses in the 7th Council of Carthage held under Cyprian, which was A.D. 256. Augustine, a century and a half later in his reply, recited the words again. So you can see there's a lot of evidence from the early Christians that they were aware of and accepted these verses. The apocryphal Acts of Pilate, which is not scripture, it's you know an apocryphal book, but it contains Mark 16, 15 through 18, the Jesus' words, as, as they were quoted by Mark. Uh, this was thought to be written somewhere around A.D. 200. 
The apostolic constitutions clearly allude to 1615 in two places and quote Mark 1616 outright. And this is thought to be written somewhere in the late 3rd century or early 4th century. Also, the overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts do include this passage. As a matter of fact, there would have been no question about it, really, if it hadn't been for the discovery of these two manuscripts. Thoughts on the problem of, include, thoughts on the problem of including or not including this passage, Guzik says, it's highly unlikely that the Gospel of Mark ended so abruptly at Mark 16.8 with the women simply being afraid but seeing no concrete evidence of the resurrected Jesus, only of an empty tomb. And, of course, the angel telling them. However, it's possible that the original ending of Mark's gospel was lost rather early. How would that happen? Noted Greek scholar A.T. Robertson wrote, It's difficult to believe that Mark ended his gospel with verse 8 unless he was interrupted. A leaf or column may have been torn off at the end of the papyrus roll. In other words, as Mark did his gospel, if it was a standalone book, which they all were before they were collated together. Uh, then it's possible one sheet got separated or part of that scroll got separated. He says, but importantly, the earliest testimony we presently have from writers like Irenaeus and others argues that the earliest Christians accepted Mark 16, 9 through 20 as genuine. Regarding the reliance upon these two Greek manuscripts and their authoritative relevance, Joe Foch points out that Vaticanus not only is missing Mark 16, 9 through 20, but also Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 46-28, most of the book of Genesis. It's missing Psalms 106 to 138. It's missing Matthew 16, verses 2 and 3. It's missing Romans 16-24. It's missing all the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. It's missing the book of Revelation. And it's missing Hebrews Chapter 9, 14 to the end of Hebrews is not there. This manuscript is not a model of purity and authority. It's a mess. I don't think we want to make it, I don't think I want to make it my model of authoritative scripture. If we're relying on it to give us the correct version of Mark 16, if it is the most reliable manuscript because of its early date, then must we not also excise the other missing verses from our Bibles? I think somebody was passing out razors, so you could, you know, just take them out now. All these sections. In addition, the Syriac translation, which is called the Peshitta, predates these two Greek manuscripts by 200 years, and it includes these 12 verses. The Centurion Syriac version, predating these two manuscripts by a century, includes the ending. Jerome's Latin Vulgate includes them, and so that was translated from the Greek. Many other language versions include these verses, 9 through 20. In the early church fathers, over 100 writers who predate Vaticanus and Sinaiticus make reference to these verses or preach from them. 200 more between A.D. 300 and 600 quote them or make use of them. As mentioned, Papias, Papias, about 100 A.D., a disciple of the Apostle John quotes these verses. I don't think there is any valid reason why we also should not accept the last 12 verses of Mark as genuine. With the rise of higher criticism in the modern era, we in many ways have become judges of the Word of God rather than placing ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. I'm not opposed to scholarship or manuscript analysis, but we must also realize that we all have our biases and we approach material with our set of biases. Many times as well, we respect human authority and simply cite what some other men say about the Word of God rather than examining the case ourselves. I think men like James Snap Jr. and these others that were mentioned have done us a great service in examining the actual evidence rather than parroting others' conclusions. In many ways, I think this is reflective of the modern church and the modern Christian. There's a tendency to set ourselves up as judges of the Word rather than believers and doers of His Word. We, speaking of Christendom, like to accept the things we like in the Word of God and question or deny those things we don't like. 
of Christendom. We all know that being in, the, in a church or calling ourselves a Christian does not mean that we are born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit or capable of being led by Him. But if you just look at everybody who names the name of Christian, we tend to like to accept the things we like from the Word of God. And if, it's, if we don't like it, then you know, maybe we have trouble accepting it. And thus, for example, many modern Christians have changed the morality of the Word of God into the immorality of the word world based on our own feelings or judgments of what is right. That is, based on our emotions. I think we live as in the days of the judges. Judges 11.25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the state of, at least, Christianity in the West. That states that a couple of times in Judges. The question is, do we have a king, capital K, in the church? It depends on which church you're talking about. Or do we set ourselves up as our own king, rather than bowing the knee to King Jesus? After all, we're Americans. We're independent in spirit and mind. But we're exhorted by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4, 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. God has given us His authoritative word, and the church has had it long before Vaticanus and Sinaiticus were unearthed. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, as we read fairly often, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In Psalms, I don't think I have a correct reference here. I have uh, Psalms 12, 6, and 7. Could you put that up, Paul? Yeah, that's the right one. Didn't look right. Words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So we can trust in the word that we have received. That it's been given to us by the Lord. So now let's look at the passage. Mark 16, uh, verses 9-11. through 11, It says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Amazing. She went and told these. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So these, this, this is where these guys are. They're still mourning and weeping as she comes to tell them. Once again, we see their mindset. The mindset of these disciples. They are blown away with disappointment. They are not plotting how they can pull off the great deception of a resurrection lie. And says, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Well, the women as a group had seen angels. But Jesus himself appeared first to Mary Magdalene uh, later on. We don't have a lot of information about her, but we're told here that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. We know that she was very devoted to Jesus. Uh, John records details of this appearance of Jesus to Mary in, in John 20. She tells the disciples, but they don't believe her. They must think she's emotionally distraught or perhaps delusional. From John's Gospel, we learn that after finding the tomb empty, she ran and told Peter and John. And coming back with her, they found the sepulcher empty, as she had told them. And they returned to their home, but she stayed at the empty tomb. And it was then that Jesus appeared to her. Uh, Verses 12 and 13 of Mark 16, it says, After that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. So uh, this appearance is recorded in 
much more detail by Luke in chapter 24, the two guys on the road to Emmaus. These two men, one of whom is not even named, are graced with a special visit by the risen Lord as he walks along with them. And then he tells, he expounds to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Their testimony is not accepted by the others at this time. So they didn't believe them either. In Mark 16, verses 14 through 20, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Henry Morris points out the Greek word for hardness of heart is clerocardia, from which is derived our English word cardiosclerosis. There are some 40 references in the Bible to what may be called spiritual cardiosclerosis. And cardiosclerosis is a fibrous tissue that grows around the heart, in the heart, around the heart. The first reference to spiritual cardiosclerosis is in connection with Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Exodus 4.21 Excuse me. We are warned today if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts in Hebrews 4.7 and that's the final reference to this uh, sclerocardia. Since Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart he obviously will have nothing to do with them from now on. He will certainly never use them in apostleship ever again. But no. On the contrary, he proceeds to commission them to the greatest task known to man, to go and preach or proclaim or herald the good news to every creature or to all creation, that is, all of humankind. Hardness of heart does not have to be permanent. Restoration is available to the one who humbles himself and believes. There are many who stumble over verse 16, which says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Some conclude from this and some other passages that baptism is essential to salvation or that one is actually regenerated, given new life through water baptism. This is not the case. It is by belief in Jesus that one is saved and by unbelief that one is lost. Jesus indicates that if you truly believe, you will be baptized for he is now your Lord, your commander, even as he is your savior and your friend. If you do not believe, then you will not be baptized, at least not for the proper reason. There are people who are baptized for the wrong reasons to impress their friends or be part of the group or whatever else might be. The only reason to be baptized is because you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. And he said, be baptized. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, we see the basis of our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by faith in God's grace. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's all based on faith. Wiersbe says a superficial reading of Mark 16.15 and 16 would suggest that sinners must be baptized to be saved. But this misinterpretation disappears when you note that the emphasis is on believing. If a person does not believe, he is condemned, even if he has been baptized. We're not saved by baptism. Baptism is, however, an essential part of the Great Commission. As it's expanded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them, 
saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So those who believe, who become disciples or learners, they follow the Lord's command to be baptized. Baptism is the first step in obedience to the Lord. And it teaches us some essential and vital lessons through analogy. We find this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He talks about this, uh, what our baptism means. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is what baptism is about. You're being lowered into the grave and then you're being raised out of the grave. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, in a resurrected life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so, the old man should no longer have dominion over us. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We reckon ourselves to be so because God says it. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. The grace of God, uh, the Holy Spirit living within us, empowers us to have victory over sin. Uh, William MacDonald again says, verse 16 is used by some to teach the necessity of water baptism for salvation. We know it cannot mean that for the following reasons. The thief on the cross was not baptized, yet he was assured of being in paradise with Christ in Luke 23:43. The Gentiles in Caesarea, Cornelius' house, were baptized after they were saved. They were regenerated, filled with the Spirit. Then they were baptized, so a baptism was not their salvation. Acts 10, 44 through 48. Jesus himself did not baptize people. John 4, verses 1 and 2. A strange omission if baptism were necessary for salvation. And Paul thanked God that he baptized very few of the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 16. An impossible thanksgiving if baptism were essential for salvation. He also states, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He couldn't say that. If you have to be baptized to be saved. And approximately 150 passages, we just read a couple, in the New Testament state that salvation is by faith alone. No verse or few verses could contradict this overwhelming testimony. That means our interpretation would be incorrect and we'd have to look at it in the light of these many other verses. And finally, baptism is connected with death and burial in the New Testament, not with spiritual birth. Uh, David Guzik says, at the same time, it would be terribly wrong to regard baptism as non-essential. It may not be essential to salvation, but it is absolutely essential, essential to obedience. Jesus told the believer to be baptized and they must do it. It becomes essential as soon as Jesus commands it. You know, I've been giving you quotes from a lot of different people this morning and I just want to clarify that... Um, when I'm quoting them, first of all, I'm not endorsing everything they say. I tell you that often because I don't know everything they say. Uh, but also, I'm not making an appeal to their authority. Our only authority is the Word of God. I'm quoting them because they say it better than I can say it. And so, 
Another example of something being essential because Jesus commands it is um, loving one another. We're not no one's saved by loving each other. We love each other because we're saved. So we're not saved by loving one another, but it's essential that we love one another because it's the command of Jesus. As believers, we're to be His obedient followers, and when we fail to obey, it is sin. Uh, Verses 17 and 18, These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. This is many people's favorite verse. Two verses in the whole Bible. Miraculous happenings would and will follow the proclamation of the gospel. These signs will follow, not precede or take precedence. The idea is that these things will occur as those who are commissioned to go about the Lord's business of preaching the word and making disciples. As those who are commissioned go about the Lord's business of preaching the word and making disciples. These things will follow. This refers to the corporate body, not each individual. All of these things are not going to be uh, happening to us individually. These things will follow the community or the body of Christ as they carry out the ministry of Jesus. When these things are manifested, it is the Lord's will and timing. It's in His will and timing, not in that of any man or of any church. Someone has said signs are meant to follow believers instead of believers following after signs. It's so true and so much the reverse of much Christianity today. So as the Gospels preached in the world, demonized people will be encountered and delivered. For example, Acts 16 Uh, Paul at Philippi with the young girl who was a fortune teller. People filled with the Holy Spirit will speak with new tongues, that is, new to the person, neither having studied nor learned it, but it is a language and not gibberish. This continues to our day. Um, One time in Chuck Smith's ministry, he was praying for someone to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they began repeating a a two-syllable phrase or word, and I can't try to remember what it was. You know, it's buried somewhere in Chuck's massive audio library. <laughs> but this person started saying something like, uh, ta-da, ta-da. You know, well, I don't think it was that, but it was like, the, you know, and they just kept repeating, and Chuck's thinking, okay, let, you know, let's move along here, you know, and get somewhere with this. And uh, then someone came, heard that, and they came up and said, Chuck, that's my... Native language, he's saying, thank you, thank you. (laughs) It's a language, not gibberish. The idea of taking up serpents and or imbibing of deadly drinks, such as bad water or actual poison, are sometimes removed from the context we have in Mark of these signs shall follow them and are proposed as tests of faith, both by some believers and by the enemies of the gospel. There was one case early early centuries uh, where a man who was opposed, I think he was an atheist, he was opposed to Christianity, and there were two guys who were vying for an office of a bishop. And his solution was, well, just let both of them drink poison, and the one that survives, he'll be he's the one that should be the bishop, you know. So he was mockingly, you know, saying this. Uh, but then there, of course, there are, you know, we have snake handling churches still in our uh, country, and, you know, they don't... I could maybe do the green snake or the, you know, some kind of garden snake, but they just use the copperheads and the rattlesnakes and things like that. So I say, no thanks. You know, um, These are proposed as tests of faith. Well, if you really, if you really have faith, you let this bite you and you'll be fine. You know, or drink this. And there are places where they actually drink uh, poisonous drinks. And, and people die. You know, not everybody dies. Some people get bit and they survive. And they're the people of real faith. You know. Some deliberately drink poison to prove the genuineness of their faith or are bitten. Some die while seeking to prove their faith. This is certainly not what is spoken of here. You will have trials that will test the genuineness of your faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So your faith might come forth as gold, you know, because it's purified. You won't need to invent any trials on your own, trials of your faith. Let God be in control of that aspect of your life. I mean, He's the one who knows 
what needs to happen, when it needs to happen, and how it's going to test your faith and, and to bring you through that. Now, we see something like this Mark 16 passage in Acts 28, how it is supposed to work. And this is when Paul's shipwrecked and he comes to this island called Malta. Uh, verses 1 through 6, while he's on the island called Malta, the natives showed us an unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So he grabs his hand. The uh, natives there know this viper. They know what the effect should be. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man's a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. He's getting his just desserts. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time, you know, they were watching Paul and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> So you still have correction to make, you know, if you're if you happen to be bitten by a viper and people think you're God, you have to explain it. Oh, no, this is Mark 16. Well, in the same way, some in church history, I don't think we have an example in in Scripture, have drunk from polluted or contaminated waters, and God has protected them, at least not in the church. Now there is that situation with was it Elijah or Elisha, where there was poison in the pot, and you know, Elijah, Elisha tells him put something in there, and then it was fine. They could uh, do that. So, um, so we can drink polluted things, contaminated waters, poisons. I don't think we go out looking for it. But if if you haven't drink that, if God's not ready to take you home yet, then it won't have any effect on you. And there there are those testimonies in church history from people, and sometimes they were forced to drink poisons. Uh, you know, being um, persecuted and it had no effect on them so i'm thinking like coca-cola you know because you've seen what it does if you put something in the coke and how it you know but that's your favorite so uh, you can drink coca-cola and no you know any deadly thing it's (laughs) well the idea behind these things is that god will supernaturally empower and protect those whom he commissions to carry out his work of ministry. And that is every believer. The specific text and context will differ, but all are commissioned without exception. This excites some and fills others with fear. But as we walk by faith, we can experience his sufficiency for the work. And it must be his sufficiency and not our own if the work is going to be accomplished. Uh, final two verses, Mark 16, 19, and 20. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Again, Mark is succinct and direct in his report. We find more details about these things in the other Gospels and, of course, in the book of Acts. So the report of the angels and the women is that Jesus is risen from the dead. He has appeared to numerous individuals and groups after his resurrection. He has commissioned his apostles and others for the work of preaching the word everywhere, making the good news of salvation by grace known in all creation. So uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. Technically, it's is risen. You can say Jesus has risen from the dead, but that leaves open the possibility that he's, his having risen has ended. <laughs> he has risen, but he no, he is risen from the dead because it's a continuing life that will go on forever. So, again, Dave, David Guzik talks about the significance of the fact of Jesus' resurrection. It's a matter of history. What it means can only be understood by what the Bible tells us. Therefore, it's important to consider what the empty tomb of Jesus and his resurrection means. The resurrection means that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1.4. The resurrection means that we have assurance of our own resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or die in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 
The resurrection means that God has an eternal plan for these bodies of ours. There are those who have taught and sometimes teach that the body is evil and needs to be done away with. Um, But God has an eternal plan for these bodies. They're going to be raised. um, G. Campbell Morgan says, There was nothing in the teaching of Jesus approaching the Gnostic heresy that declared that the flesh is inherently evil. Plato could only get rid of sin by getting rid of the body. Jesus retains the body and declares that God feeds the body as well as the soul, that the body is as sacred is as a sacred thing as the soul, since the soul makes it its sanctuary. Okay, we've got corrupt bodies now. We have fallen bodies. Uh, they tend to inhibit us and weigh us down at times. Uh, but these bodies will be transformed. They'll become like His glorious body. Here he goes on to say, The resurrection means that Jesus has a continuing ministry. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He ever lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 The resurrection means that Christianity and its God are unique and completely different among world religions. Nothing else out there like Christianity in many ways. And then the resurrection proves that though it looked like Jesus died on the cross like a common criminal, He actually died as a sinless man. This is proven by the resurrection of Christ out of love and self-sacrifice to bear the guilt of our sin. And I I really like the next statement. The death of Jesus on the cross was the payment, but the resurrection was the receipt, showing that the payment was perfect in the sight of God the Father. His death on the cross was the payment. The resurrection is the receipt. It reveals to us God has fully accepted the work of Jesus in paying for our sins. And so anyone who believes in Him shall not perish that you'll have everlasting life.